All right, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, let me just kind of catch you up to speed with where we're at. Um, This is an incredible book written to Jewish believers. Here were Jews who grew up in the Jewish faith and Judaism, the law, the prophets, the temple, the sacrifices, the aroma, like everything Jewish, they grew up in that. Now they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, Jesus fulfilled all of that. And so Paul, or the, sorry, not Paul, the author, we don't know, is writing to this group of people who are in a, in a period of time when they're losing their faith, they're getting discouraged, their fellow brothers are being fed to lions at this point in time. This was written around 60 AD when Caesar Nero was in power, very wicked guy, very evil guy. Uh, people were taking their home, their homes are being taken from them, their lands are being taken from them. I mean, they're going through extreme persecution. It is hard to be a follower of Jesus. And the whole, the author's whole point of this book is, listen, keep, fix, look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look away from Jesus. Uh, the, the author is trying to get this point of when you get discouraged and when you want to go back, go back to your old ways, go back to your old life, go back to the old patterns, fix your eyes on Jesus. This is a timely book because basically he's saying, don't give up, don't ever give up, fix your eyes on Jesus. The Holy Spirit's solution to discouragement and to really just pain, suffering, losing loved ones, the Holy Spirit's solution is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And so this book, again, is written during a time when, remember, the temple, and this is just history, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The temple is still in existence. So there's a a desire maybe to go back to the physical, go back to the law, go back to the temple, go back to the sacrifices, go back to all of that. And the author is trying to say, listen, the law, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, it all speaks of Jesus. It's all a shadow, and the substance is of Christ. These things that are physical are truly the shadow. The physical thing that you're looking for and longing for is Jesus the one who's seated at the right hand of God. So what I love about Hebrews is there's this emphasis on Jesus. See, we, we might not come out of Judaism, but we came out of something. And there's a tendency to want to go back to those things under discouragement, under persecution. And he's saying, don't go back, look to Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. So we're studying this book because I, I really hope we as a church can get this just grand big picture of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has he done? What has he done for us? Why does this matter? And so the author, we studied last week three whole verses. Uh, Today we're going to finish chapter one. But the author's point last week was Jesus is far better than you think he is. Like however you view Jesus, he's better than that. He's like, you might think that Jesus is God, but he's like, yes, he is all that and more. He's like, Jesus is far better than you think he is. Now the argument kind of shifts. So here's where we're at. Hebrews chapter one, verse four through 14. The author feels like it's important to discuss this. He's like, Jesus is better than angels. And you're like, well, isn't that obvious after everything he said? Yes, but this is very important for their context and we'll explain why. So let's read Hebrews chapter one, verse four. We're gonna read this at the end of the chapter. Remember, there's just seven statements about Jesus, who he is, what he's done. So Hebrews chapter one, verse four, let's keep reading. It says, So Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4. He's become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they, are angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? You're like, this is a bizarre chapter, I know. Um, we're going to walk through this. And we're going to see the author's intent to say, Jesus, angels, Jesus, angels. And he's trying to make the point that Jesus is far better. And we'll even explore why does that matter? And why does that matter today? And, I, and I, this will, in a sense, be a little bit of a teaching on angelology. What are angels anyways? Maybe there's a context we don't have that they had. So we're going to pray and look at this more in depth. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. God, that you sent your best, that you gave us. <laughs> the one that... Um, God, who could truly meet all, all of our needs and pay for our sins, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, we just ask that you would speak, that you would move, you bring clarity to a text, to a time period that might not make sense to us right now. Uh, but Jesus, we know that this word is timeless. And God, give us again a greater view of Jesus and who he is and what he's done in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You know, there seems to be throughout every culture, throughout every time period, you could travel anywhere. There seems to be an obsession with angels to some extent. There's a fascination by angels. We write books about angels. We sing songs about angels. We talk about angels. There's Touched by an Angel. I don't know if that's a show still, but there's like a lot of Charlie's Angels. I mean, we could go on and on. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on angels and who are they? What do they do? What are they like? Uh, there is a movie that shaped my theology of angels at a very young age called Angels in the Outfield. Um, I don't know if you've heard that. I asked some Gen Zers, I'm like, oh, have you guys seen this movie? They're like, what's that? I'm like, oh, I was like offended. I'm like, that's a sin. You got to know what this is. Uh, but being from Southern California, and they made a movie about like my baseball team, like the Angels were our family's team. And they made Angels in the Outfield. And I, like, si this movie came out when I was six. And so when it came out, I was like, I'm like, oh my gosh, so I just like go like this and then they peer. And, you know, I was like, what happened? It's just so, you know, it really does. It's funny how we don't really think about it this way, but the movies we've seen, the shows we've seen, the books that are out there, it shapes our theology. It shapes how we view God, how we view angels, how we view any topic it, it speaks into. Here's what I want to do today. I want to redeem some of our mindset around angels. Uh, what are they? Um, why did God create them? What do they do? Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is better than the angels? Why is the author even making this comparison to begin with? He's like talking about Jesus and angels and Jesus and angels. Why is he doing that? This argument actually extends into chapter two. So we'll have more talk about angels in chapter two. But he, the author finds it very important to talk about it. So we want to talk about it. Uh, what is it saying? If you will notice, if you look back at chapter one right now, you will notice he actually quotes seven different passages from the Old Testament. This is cool. Uh, the first three verses, he had seven statements about Jesus and who he is, right? Now in verse 4 through 14, there are seven Old Testament passages he is directly quoting from. We'll throw them up here. Uh, not that we need to go through them, but in case you are curious, as he walks through verse 4, verse 5 through 14, you're going to see Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Deuteronomy, a lot more Psalms at the end. So the author is saying, let me make an argument for how Jesus is God. Let me make an argument for how Jesus is greater than angels. Let me tell you what angels are. And let me tell you how Jesus is just better than that. 
So he's doing this over and over again. Now, a couple of little fun facts. Uh, this was obviously the book of Hebrews. was written to Jewish believers, but this was written in Greek. So they're probably Hellenistic Jews, which means they're Jews who also could read and speak in Greek. Uh, but understand that these verses he's quoting from is something, he's quoting from something called the Septuagint. Everyone say Septuagint. Septuagint. It's, uh, it's a simple definition. The Septuagint is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was translated into Greek, probably in the, in the region of Egypt somewhere uh, around this time. And then they took that, and they, this is the author's quoting from this. So if you look at the verses here and you go back, it might not be verbatim. A couple thoughts on that is, one, because he's, he's quoting from not the Hebrew translation, but the Septuagint translation. And two, if the Holy Spirit wants to quote the Holy Spirit, he can also quote himself how he wants. That's just my thought. So we'll move on. Uh, but we're looking at really Jesus being greater than the angels, right? And this is the author's main point. So here's the four points today. We're going to walk through this. Number one is this. Jesus is God's son. He wants to be really clear. Jesus is God's son. Angels are God's ministers. Jesus is the unchanging king. Angels are the kingdom advancers. There's the points we're going to walk through today. Jesus is God's son. Angels are God's ministers. Jesus is the unchanging king. Angels are the kingdom advancers. Sound good? Let's walk through this text. Cool? Yes, you ready? All right, verse 4. Let's see the first thing. Jesus is God's son. Read verse 4 again with me. It says, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus is God's son. He's trying to make this really quick, clear. You are my son. You are my son. He's quoting from Psalm 2. If you want to go back and read Psalm 2, it's a psalm that we would call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that's speaking about the Messiah, looking forward to the Messiah. And he's quoting back saying, God is saying that there's going to come a day where his son enters creation. You are my son. You're my son. If you remember Mary, when she was told that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, which is such a crazy revelation, like, hey, you're going to have the Messiah. Like, yeah, everyone wants that job. You get it. And they're told that he will be called son of the most high. If you remember when Jesus was on the mount with Peter, James, and John, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. When Jesus had been baptized, he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is God's son. This is the point he's trying to make. Now, I'm bringing this up because this is kind of tricky. People read this and they misinterpret this and go, wait a second, but it sounds like Jesus was, had to be made this. Like, look at the words. We'll throw the verses up here again. It says in verse 4, having become so much better. It says that he obtained a more excellent name than they. People struggle with this verse, and they go, how can Jesus be God if he became so much better? That means he was inferior, right? He obtained, so that means he was inferior and he had to be made better. Here's the context too. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. The author explains this later, so I'll just kind of fast forward a bit. Hebrews 2, verse 9. It says this, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Here's the idea. Jesus is God. He had to be made lower than the angels. Why? Well, he had to die. Angels, as we'll see, don't die. Jesus had to be made lower than the angels so he could die. So that means he now obtained a more excellent name. So people go, it sounds like it was just a man who maybe got elevated. No, it's God who was made lower, who's elevated again. That makes sense. Yes? We'll move on to some other words that people are like, I don't get these words. Uh, it says in verse 5, today I have begotten you. He again brings the firstborn into the world, verse 6. So begotten, firstborn. If Jesus is begotten, if he's a firstborn, how is he preexistent? How is he truly God? This word begotten is used many times throughout the New Testament as just speaking of equality in nature. 
It's speaking even of most likely the incarnation, the idea that at one point in time, God had to enter into human history. So he was begotten, but he was always in existence before. But he had to enter into creation. Hope I'm not losing you. So I want to make this really clear for many reasons. Even this word firstborn. This word firstborn is, is quoted in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Even though we know that Jesus wasn't the first one born from the dead, we know that many people came back to life. What, why is this, what is this word firstborn? David was called firstborn, but he was the eighth born. Solomon was called the firstborn, but he was the tenth one born. This word firstborn even just means priority, status. It literally means he is uh, preeminent above all. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's preeminent over everything. It's the word in Greek, proto-tacos. If you want to think like him, pro-tacos. Uh, the idea is like he's just for every, he's above everything. He's above everyone. He's the firstborn. So it's not necessarily literal as much as like a statement to kind of communicate how he's above it all. Are you track with me? Again, why does this matter? Why am I bringing this up? Um, for many reasons. I want to point out verse 6. Look at verse 6. There's a psalm that says, let all the angels of God worship him. This is what the author's saying about Jesus. The author's saying, angels worship Jesus. So Jesus is greater than angels. Angels worship Jesus. You ask, I thought only God can be worshipped. You're right. Only God can be worshipped. So if angels worship Jesus, so the author's saying, what does that mean? If Jesus is being worshipped and only God can be worshipped, he's saying Jesus is God. I just want to be really clear with this because this is something still today we, we walk, we kind of face issues with, you could say. So, for example, um, there are people who claim to be Christians. They call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses, and how we have a better translation, the New World Translation. They knock on your door, and they say, have you heard of Jesus' real name? And they try to go around, and, and really, we would say this. They are not a denomination of Christianity. They're not a part of the Christian faith. We would call them a cult. There's a book called The Kingdom of Cults. I'd recommend it. He just kind of talks through what is a cult, how is a cult defined a cult. They take Jesus, they hijack the person of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and they lessen him, they lower him. They take away from his deity. If you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say, Jesus is Michael the archangel, Michael is Jesus. And so Jesus is an angel to them. And my point is, point them to Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 is basically, no, angels worship him, he's not an angel. Actually, we're going to read a verse in a second. God said to the Son, you are God. Could be more clear than that. Um, my thing is, this is still something people try to, I, we were at a uh, Starbucks in my small group, and we're reading the Bible, and a guy comes up to us, and he's like, oh, you have a Bible? And we're like, yeah. He's like, I love Bibles. I love all translations of Bibles. I'm like, oh no, where's this going? He's like, have you heard of the New World Translation? I'm like, oh. I'm like, let me just stop you right there. Like, yes, I have, but, and this, we had a little dialogue. It was so fun. Um, but this is still something that goes around. And, and I'll say this. There's something we can learn from them. They take their faith incredibly serious. They go to door, door to door. They're, they're bold. I, I think there's something we can definitely learn from. But also, we would say, there's not a lot of times I'll use this word, but that is heresy. That's heretical. That's taken away from the person of Jesus that will tamper with salvation. Um, that is not a small thing. I take it, we take that very serious. It's not like, oh, they're just like lost. Like, no, they're not. It's, it's not like they're like a denomination that's just different than us. It's, this is very serious. Um, this, is worth, this is worth getting into scriptural t- back and forth with. Uh, but there's also another group of people called Mormons, right? And Mormons have a very similar view, and it's funny how both of these cults will actually just tamper with the deity of Jesus. For Mormons, he's not Michael the archangel like Jehovah's Witnesses, but Mormons believe what? That he and Lucifer, Satan, are half-brothers. That God one day, if you know the Mormon story, redemption, like earth's in sin, there's an issue. Hey, Satan, hey, Jesus, do you have a plan for salvation? Lucifer brings his idea. God's like, I don't like that. What about yours, Jesus? He's like, I like your idea, Jesus. And Satan goes, I'm mad. I want to end this. Okay, that's essentially uh, the Mormon's view. Well, he's still, according to the Mormons, an angel. He's the half-brother of Satan. Why I'm bringing this up is there is issues like this then. Colossians 2.18 
actually says that there was worship of angels happening in the early church. The early church, and we'll see this, was highly influenced by angels. Like you read the book of Acts, you're going to see angels everywhere. To the point where now people are beginning to look at these angels and worshiping them. The author is trying to make it really clear there's no one like Jesus. The angels that you worship, guess what? They worship Jesus. Um, there is an emphasis on angels even within Judaism. Why? The, for the Jewish mindset, angels were so important because they delivered the law of God to man. There's actually, let me just, maybe like I never knew this. When Moses received the law, we're told in Deuteronomy and Galatians also repeats it, how Moses took the law, but he received it from angels. That God couldn't, you know, hand it to him. The angels actually gave it to him. So here's the verses we'll throw up here. Deuteronomy 33, 2. Uh, it says, he came, he came, he came with 10,000 holy ones. It, Galatians 3 says it, it, the law was put in place through angels. Uh, the idea, again, was for the Jewish mindset, angels were so superior, so great, because they gave us the, the spoken word of God, the actual word of God, the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. So they had a high view of angels, a very high view of angels. And here's what the author's saying. He goes, if you so regard angels because they gave you the law, well, we have a greater message than even the law. We have the message became flesh. We have a greater message than the first five books. God actually, the word of God actually walked among us that we could behold him and look at him and touch him and see him and know him. The word wasn't just words on a page or words spoken. The word actually took on human flesh. And he goes, so if you have a high view of angels, let me give you a higher view of Jesus, who gave us something even better than the law. So the, the author, again, is dealing with cultural issues, worship of angels, a very high view of angels. Jesus, in their mind, was, you know, God became man, but he's trying to remind them, yes, he's God who became man, but he obtained a more excellent name than they. And so he's just trying to remind them of the superiority of Jesus. Again, this does matter for us, because I really do think we should be praying for the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, and we should point to listen, all the angels of God worship Jesus. And the authors using the Old Testament to show how Jesus, the Messiah, would be worshiped, how he would be God. It's an incredible argument. He's using seven passages to make his point. Are you guys tracking with me? So what is he saying? Jesus is God's son. Now verse seven is, what are angels? Okay, what are angels? Verse seven, what does he say? Uh, let's just read it. Number point number two is angels are God's ministers. Let's read verse seven. Simply says this, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. What are angels? I don't know, but that's really cool. I don't know. Um, you can read this, and actually it's fun. If you want to explore it more, there's a lot of thought about this. It says he makes his angels winds and his uh, ministers flames of fire. What is the idea of wind and flames of fire? What is that? Some say it speaks of the angel's might and power. Some say it speaks of their swiftness, like wind going quickly. Uh, the idea, we got to understand with angels, angels are not omnipresent. Angels cannot be everywhere at once. God is omnipresent. God can be everywhere at once. God can send angels where he wants. It seems that they can travel pretty quickly or maybe be in one place and be in the next place moments later, uh, but they're not omnipresent. So he, he uses this definition of they are ministers. So let's just focus on that. What are angels? He says angels are ministers. Um, I do want to talk about briefly what are angels and then at verse 14, we'll look at what do angels do, okay? So what are angels? What do angels do? Um, angel, the word angel is this word messenger. It's a messenger. Um, really, it's, some, it's a spiritual being that obeys God and submits to God, and God's messenger. Uh, one definition, angels are intelligent personal beings who worship and obey God. Angels are intelligent. They're personal. They worship God, they obey God, they submit to God. Obviously, we, we won't talk necessarily about the rebellion of angels that took place. There seems to be some sort of rebellion that took place in heaven with a third of the angels fell or walked away from God, and 
you could say that those are now called demons, and Satan and his angels, those demons, a third of them went with him. Um, that's what's believed in theology, when he's like, what are angels, what are demons? We're not going to talk about demons right now, maybe later. Um, but we are going to look at, what are these? They're intelligent, personal beings who worship and obey God. Let me say this, they are created beings. Angels are created beings. They have not always existed. They are created. Actually, we're told this, Jesus created the angels, that Jesus, who's greater than angels, according to Colossians 1.16, created angels. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, principalities. Uh, what is that? Angels. Jesus is their creator. They are created. Now, they seem to have some sort of privileges or, or even like authority, or they seem to even have just some, you know, miraculous elements to them whether it's flying, whether it's appearing, disappearing, there seems to be something like that. Um, I do want to talk about uh, angels do have spiritual bodies. Uh, they're not bodies like ours, but they seem to also be bound to certain limitations. First Peter 3.19 talks about how there were spirits put up in prison. Th those seem to be fallen angels. You can read that context later, but they're also bound by things. So they have bodies, but not like you and I think. Um, it is interesting, again, I, I think we have maybe a, a picture of our mind that angels are either cute, fat, little chubby babies that like shoot little things at us, or uh, maybe we have this image that they have these wings and they fly. They don't have to have wings. Some have wings. We sit in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, but not all angels are told that they have wings, but they have some sort of spiritual body. Um, there are many names and many kinds of angels. It, it is fun if you want to do a this later. There's something called seraphim and cherubim. There's an archangel. There's angels. They're also called spirits. Um, you could read about it in that context. They seem to have different roles. They seem to have maybe different levels of authority. Um, so I'm just trying to give you an idea of what they are. Um, we're told in Luke 20, 36, angels never die. They never die. So that's why Jesus had to be made lower again than the angels, Hebrews 2, 9, so that he could die. So angels can't die. They're created. They exist. God created. Now, they might be separated from God, the ones that have fallen or rebelled against him, but they can't die. Um, and let me just say this. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of angels. I was trying to get like verses, like verse after verse, but there's like innumerable. And the, the Psalms talk about there's just an innumerable host of angels. I like that thought. I like that, you know, Jesus on the cross, and he goes, I could call down 12 legions of angels. A legion was maybe about 6,000. So he's like, I could just call down 72,000 angels right now if I wanted. The, the idea is that there, there's a lot of them. I think that's a very cool thought for many reasons when we talk about what do they do. We'll talk about what do they do next. So just hold off. So this is what angels are. He goes, uh, they're ministering spirits. He says they're like the wind. Like the, and he kind of gives this kind of curious definition in the Psalms. But we'll talk about what they do in verse 14. So let's keep going. We have Jesus who's God's son. Angels are God's ministers. Number three, Jesus is the unchanging king. Jesus is the unchanging king. Can we look at verse 8? So notice what the author is doing. Jesus, angels, Jesus, angels. Jesus, chapter 2, it's great. Verse 8, he says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Listen, Jesus is the unchanging king. Verse 8 is so key. I mentioned it. 
circle it, star it. He asked this question in verse 8, but to the Son, he says, what? Your throne, O God. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God. He's calling the Son God. I want us to get that. Like, to me, that just settles everything. It's like, where does it say Jesus got? Your Son, to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. God is calling Jesus God, so that makes Jesus what? God. I just, he's just trying to make this strong argument. And, and it's fun to read the Psalms through this perspective, like this New Testament filter of just how Jesus fulfilled this. Now, I want to see this, not just that he's God, but notice the way he rules. He goes, you rule with a scepter of righteousness. Like the way in which Jesus, is, Jesus rules is righteous. It's good. Because I, I, this, is, this is the kingdom we're all looking for. I think all of us, we long to see in politics, maybe there's like, I want to see justice and righteousness. It's not going to happen. We long to see something that will not happen other than fulfilled in Jesus. Like what you're looking for, so will there ever be peace? Will there ever just be a noble person ruling and reigning? Jesus. Like what we're looking for, the, the scepter of righteousness, Jesus. And let's just even look at this big picture. Um, this just means how and what Jesus does is good, it's righteous, it's true. So I, I don't always understand the way God works. We can ask questions like, what happens to that person in Central Africa in 1426 if they never heard the? And we can like have these questions. Also, this true and righteous are his judgments. At the end of the day, this is what I bank on. It's Revelation 16. The angels in heaven literally cry this out. Listen to Revelation 16, 7. He, uh, the author writes, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. He's like, I hear all of heaven saying, true and righteous are your judgments. You know, we don't always understand why God does the things he does or why doesn't he intervene when he should intervene. We, we don't, we can't always comprehend that, but I'll say this, but he does rule and reign with truth and righteousness. That he has a scepter of righteousness. And not just that, but notice what he says. He goes, everything else will grow old, everything else will be rolled up, fall apart, but your throne, O God, is forever. But your throne, again in verse 11 and 12, he says, they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not fail. I'm so thankful he rules righteously, but that he'll forever rule righteously. That he'll not be voted out of office. This will not come to an end. That Jesus is the unchangeable, immutable king. That later the author picks up on this again in Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, 8, what does he say? He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the pre-existent one who's always existed, who will always exist. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He's unstoppable. The things around us change. The circumstances change. Our families change. The pain happens. Jesus is the one who never changes. He's the one stable rock in your life. Amen? He's the one person. You know, everything else around me is changing, but he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That all the kingdoms will grow old, and the earth will grow up, but Jesus and his king, who he is, what he's done, will continue on. He is the unchangeable, immutable king. And that is such good news. In a, in a life where you feel like there's nothing consistent, people can come and go, people might hurt you, you might feel like you lose things, gain things, you have this stable king of kings. He's the unchangeable king. Amen? And, and I want you to notice something he does this. So he goes, look it. He goes, he's God who rules righteously and rules forever righteously. And verse 13 is so interesting. He quotes Psalm 110 where it says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If you would, in verse 13 in your Bible, just write this. Um, this is the most quoted verse in all of the New Testament from the Old Testament. So I want you to get this. The most quoted verse in the New Testament is this verse. The most quoted verse in the New Testament is based off of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is quoted in book after book, all three Gospels. Uh, Hebrews alone is quoted, I think, six times. Psalm 110 is in a, such a foundational chapter to us believing that Jesus is Messiah and that Messiah is Lord. 
This is an incredibly important chapter. Jesus quotes it, and on Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of how Jesus quotes Psalm 110. So let me just catch you up really quick. Can we just talk about Psalm 110? I mean, when something's quoted the most in the New Testament, um, we should probably pay attention. Would you agree? I think, that's, I think it means it's important if it's quoted the most. So here's, here's the idea. Um, we'll put the verse up here in a second, but it's in Luke chapter 20. It's in Mark chapter 12. It's, it's just in the Gospels. There's this interaction between Jesus and the crowds, Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the scribes, Jesus and the uh, Sanhedrin. There's just these interactions. They come to Jesus with question after question after question. Jesus, are we allowed to be married in, in the afterlife? And they have questions for Jesus. Jesus answers them brilliantly. It says no man dared question him. Like he answered so well, they're like, I don't, we have no more questions. And so Jesus in Luke 20, I'll use that version. Jesus is like, well, now I have questions for you. So when Jesus asks a question, he refers to Psalm 110. I can't, I don't think we can emphasize Psalm 110 enough. If Jesus goes, let me give you a sermon about the Messiah being God, I'm going to use Psalm 110. So here's what Jesus does. Luke 20, we'll throw the verses up here so you can read it. But it's Luke chapter 20, verse 41. He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus said, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? If you guys remember the story at all, I want to kind of catch you up to speed. He says, we all know the Messiah. Listen, we all know the Messiah would come from David. We all know the Messiah would be the son of David. That was just prophesied countless amount of times. The Messiah would be man who would come from David. But Jesus goes, wait a second. In Psalm 110, the king, who's like the ruler of the kingdom, known above him, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand so I can make your enemies your footstool. Jesus goes, who's that second Lord? If the Lord says to David's Lord, who's David's Lord? So he has a Lord and he has the Lord. He goes, the Lord said to my Lord. So who's David's Lord? He's saying, if the Messiah is his son, if the Messiah comes after him, how is the Messiah also before him? Do you follow Jesus' question? It's brilliant. And it's a wonder, like when you go back and read Psalm 10, you're like, yeah, what is that? The Lord said to my Lord, isn't the Lord David's Lord? But how does he have a Lord that, what? Like, so the Messiah comes from David and yet he's above David? The Messiah comes from David and yet he's preexistent before David? So he has, he has some sort of eternality attached to him. And Jesus brings up this question. People are like, I've never considered that. Who is the Lord of the Lord? Like, who is this? Why did the Lord say to David's Lord? And how does David have two lords? David's the king. There's no above him, but the true Lord. And yet he has a Lord above him. You're like, I'm lost. I hope you're not. Um, this is a phenomenal argument. He's saying David has someone who comes after him who's also above him. David has someone who, who will be called the Messiah, the Son of Man, but he's also before him. He's also, David submits to him in the process. So David recognizes that the Messiah must be eternal. David and to be eternal, David's saying he recognizes that he must be God. So Jesus brings everyone's attention to Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews six times brings the attention to Psalm 110. In different ways, he brings the, the, our attention to Psalm 110. We'll go back to Psalm 110 and talk about the Melchizedekian priesthood. There's some amazing things about Psalm 110. What I'm trying to do today for us is to see this. The author's whole hope and intent is Jesus is God. Angels are just messengers, ministers. Jesus is God's son who is ruling and reigning forever, righteously, and guess what? He's always reigned. He's always reigned. As David said, my Lord said to my Lord, he's always reigned. He's reigned, he will reign, he's reigning now, he'll reign again, he's just going to reign forever. And so there's this like eternality, this unchanging, this immutable king of kings named Jesus. Amen? He goes, Jesus is so much better, why are you elevating angels to, to his level? He was made lower, but he was made exalted above them. And then verse 14, he says, aren't they, and then he just talks about what angels are, and this is why I want to talk about what angels, or what angels do. This is why I want to talk about what angels do. Look at verse 14. This is a beautiful verse. 
He's like, aren't they, I love this, like it's assumed, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Listen, angels are the kingdom advancers. This is really interesting to me. We talk about what they are, but what do they do? He said, they minister to those who will inherit salvation. Like they're preparing people to inherit salvation. That is a fascinating thought. So let's just talk through this really quick. Um, what do angels do? I'm going to give you some thoughts just because we'll close with verse 14. Um, angels protect. Angels protect. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, there's story after story of angels. You're going to see them protect. Psalm 91 talks about this. 2 Kings 6. Do you remember the story with Elijah, Elisha and his servant? And Elisha and his servant were surrounded by the Syrians. And the servant is panicking, like, we're going to die. We're going to die. And Elisha's like, God, I just pray that you open his eyes to the unseen. I just pray that you open his eyes to the supernatural, to the spiritual realm. And he's like, wait, there's an army surrounding this army. He's like, yeah, that's the heavenly host. That's the angels. Angels protect. It's Daniel chapter 6 when Daniel's in the lion's den. And we're told that angels stop the mouths of the lions. Angels protect. Church, we got to know this. Angels protect in the New Testament. Angels protect after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We'll keep going with that, and you'll see that. Um, angels are powerful. Like, we've got to understand, they are powerful. Um, I don't, well, don't want to overemphasize this, but I want to um, underemphasize this. 2 Kings 19.35, if you want to read that story about one angel killing 185,000 Assyrians, it's, it's an intense story. Um, that's just one angel. We're not even told he's an archangel. It's like an, probably like Angel Joe, Angel Bob. Like, Angel Bob, how, like, you know, they're powerful, man. Uh, there is something about this. Obviously, we read another story that in Daniel chapter 10, there's this interaction between Michael the archangel and the prince of Persia and how there is some sort of spiritual things going on that we fully don't see, like 2 Kings 6 says, like Daniel 10 says, that, they, that our prayers actually engage in that spiritual realm. And there, that's another sermon for another day on spiritual warfare, but there's something happening where our prayers actually help between this conflict between, you could say, uh, God's angels and the fallen angels. Number three, angels worship. I know this is obvious. But you got to know in Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, they're constantly around the throne. They're constantly looking at Jesus. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's a sense of when you see God, you can't help but worship. Angels show us how to worship. They teach us how to worship. They cover their face. They cover their feet. We're told in Isaiah 6, not all of them, but these ones, specifically the seraphim, they're saying, God, you're holy. I can't put, look upon you. God, I cover my feet. Don't look upon me. You are holy. You are good. And so they worship. And we can learn a lot from angels and how they worship. Um, angels guide and encourage Read Acts 6, or Acts 8, where the angel speaks to Philip to go share the gospel, and this Ethiopian guy gets saved. An incredible story. Acts 27, Paul's shipwrecked, and the angel strengthens him and says, don't worry, you're going to go to Caesar. And the angel's actually speaking life over him and encouraging him. Again, this is New Testament. This is the angels involved in the church saying, hey, be encouraged. They're guiding, they're, they're encouraging. Um, angels execute God's judgments. In Acts 12, Herod it's a very just arrogant man, and he would not give God glory. And it says an angel struck him and he died. I don't know what that's like. There's some big events, and he's like, oh, yes, thank you. Praise be more. And then he just falls over. I don't know if people, they probably didn't see it. He just falls over dead, like, what, what just happened? Um, they execute God's judgments. You see that in Matthew 24. The angels who carry people off into eternal life or into eternal damnation, they execute God's judgments. Angels are just part of Scripture in, in very significant ways. Look at this. Angels deliver angels deliver. It's primarily Acts 12, but Peter's in prison. Peter's in prison, right? And he's, they're singing psalms and stuff, and anyways, he's in prison, and the angel strikes him on the side and like, get up. His chains fall off. He leaves the house. Remember, there's a prayer meeting happening. God, release Peter from prison. God, release Peter from prison. Peter knocks at the door. Someone goes, I hear Peter, Peter's voice. I think it's Peter. And they're like, no, it's just his angel. Let's go back to praying. First of all, I don't get that. Like, it's just his angel. 
What does that mean? Um, it's like, and if it's an angel at the door, I, I would still answer it. But like, no, let's just, we got to pray for Peter. And they're like, no, it's, it's truly Peter. And you got to read that story of how the angel delivered Peter. Um, this does raise a question like, are there guardian angels? What does that look like? There's a very interesting verse, I, I think, at least Matthew 18.10. We'll throw the verse up. Matthew 18.10, it says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, children. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. You know, I don't know if it's like we, how we maybe think it is or imagine it is, or like, the, you know, angels in the outfield. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's the way we kind of grew up with it, but there seems to be a reference to God's like, be careful how you treat one of these because their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. So obviously angels have unique intimacy with God. One, they see the face of God. They have unique intimacy with God, but they're angels. I don't know what that protect. I don't know what that looks like. When they said oh, it's just Peter's angel, it, there seems to be some sort of understanding that God also uses them for protection. I mean, that's that's New Testament. This is like today, church happening. So angels deliver. Listen, angels rejoice. In Luke fifteen eleven, Jesus tells us really clearly. He goes, when one person, when one person repents, when one person says, "I'm going to stop living for myself and start living for Jesus," he said, "The angels in heaven rejoice." I love that thought. I love that angels right now are looking down at earth saying, will one person get it? Will one person repent? Will one person believe in Jesus, who they're created for, what they're created for? Like angels are curious about what's going on. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, it says angels desire to look into the things concerning salvation. Read First Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 10 through 12. He goes, angels are amazed that God shows us grace. Angels are amazed by the salvation God has shown us. Angels rejoice then when one person says, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I've been living for me my whole life and I'm not, it's not, life's not about me. I'm made by him and for him. And when one person repents, angels go, yes, they get it. And they celebrate in heaven. I love that thought. And lastly, this, um, angels advance God's kingdom. I mean, it's Hebrews 1 verse 14. It's our verse. Again, look at the question. He goes, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Are they not necessarily preparing the way for those who will believe one day? This is a mind-blowing thing. I mean, we can look at this in many different ways. It's every story we might be hearing. If you like read Christianity Today or any of those kind of things, they, they talk about you know, how in this part of the globe, this Muslim nation is having dreams of Jesus being the Messiah. And this, you know, someone appeared to them and shared the gospel, not know who they were. Like, it's possible, obviously, that angels do minister in this way. Hebrews 13 later refers back to angels and says, um, be careful who you show hospitality to because you might be entertaining an angel. Like, what is that? Like, what is that? It's like drops that in there. Like, by the way, if you meet someone random, be really nice. You don't know. Maybe it's an angel. Like, that's just a weird, you know. But there's a side of it where angels advance God's kingdom. I will say this. It, it, this does involve us. Because when you read Daniel 10 and the angel says to Daniel, I would have come to you sooner but I was in this battle. Daniel was praying and fasting for 21 days when the angel was delivered. You know, what if he didn't pray and fast for 21 days? What would that look like? How come our involvement affects that spiritual realm? It does. It just does. God, involved, God made it that way. That our prayers just do affect that realm in some way, in some capacity. That we get to join hands with God to be advancers of the kingdom. That the angel's are like, come on, join us. We're doing it. Can you join us? That God wants us to be part of this a wonderful commission to go out and make disciples of all nations. That the angels, when someone rejoices, like, yes, that hard work that we put into it, that you, it's happening, God, and they celebrate and they rejoice. Again, for us, just practically, you guys, here, here's what I want us to see. He goes, Jesus is greater than why. They can preach the message of salvation, but Jesus is salvation. You want to know why Jesus is greater? They can advance the kingdom, but Jesus is the king of the kingdom. They might try to say you need salvation, but Jesus is himself salvation. Jesus is greater, Amen. Hey, let us join Jesus. Let us join God. And according to Hebrews 1, let us join this work 
were the angels, where God is trying to advance his kingdom on earth. They are, are they not ministers sent forth to minister salvation? Again, you guys, when you read the book of Acts, just filled with angel stories. Angel after angel. After angel. And again, for us, we should never get too weird about this and elevate angels because the point is it's all speaking of Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all saying finally someone repents and believes in, Je- in Jesus. That's what it's about. So it's not even like, how cool is this? Like, it is cool. But even then, they're saying, don't look at us. Look at Jesus. We're, we're behind the scenes. We don't want to be seen. We, we want it to be about Jesus. And so let's join this work. Amen? Hey, we're going to worship. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to do what Hebrews tells us, where he says, all the angels of God, they worship Jesus. Guess what we're doing right now? There's a worship service going on in heaven, and we're just going to join them really quick, okay? While they're worshiping God, we're going to just stand up, we're going to sing, we're going to praise him, and we're going to join them in what they've been doing for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this wonderful truth that Jesus is greater, that he's not just give us the law, but God, he is the word. We thank you. God, we thank you. We ask that this would be humbling. We ask that, Jesus, our eyes would be fixed on you. God, we ask that those who maybe try to diminish Jesus and lessen him to the status of an angel, that they would see that all the angels worship him. Jesus, we join in that. We thank you. You are the unchanging, immutable king, and we just want to praise you now in your wonderful and precious name. We thank you. Amen. Let's just stand and close our time with some worship.